Hey everyone, and welcome to our podcast from SGLT3, your friendly Pod3 intern group in the Nephrology Social Media Collective, class of 2022. Our podcast today is What to Expect When Your Patient is Expecting, a Kidney's Doctor's Perspective. So here on today's podcast, we have two of my co-interns, Dr. Christelle Wikon-Kemeny and Dr. Priya John. Christelle, do you want to say hi? And where you're from? I'm Christelle, and I am currently a chief resident at the University of North Carolina in the Department of Pediatrics. And I'm from originally the Hampton Roads area of Virginia. Great. Thanks for joining us. And Priya, how about you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself and tell us where you're from? Thanks, Unibari. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Priya. I'm a consultant nephrologist from Hyderabad, India. Uh, and today I'm so excited to be part of this podcast uh, on pregnancy and hypertension. Great. Thanks, you guys, for joining me. And thanks to the audience for uh, joining in. So uh, one of the things that we all see when we are in um, our practices is while we see adults and children, um, we also see pregnancy. And pregnancy is very, very important to keep in mind. As we all know, it's not just the mother, it is also the fetal health itself. So it's even more important for all of us to be very well aware of the common problems that could potentially happen to our patients who could potentially have kidney disease during their pregnancy. So we thought that would be best to go ahead and just walk through a case, go through this case and see essentially what are some common issues that can occur during pregnancy what are the things that we can do as nephrologists to help our patients? So let's go ahead and jump right in. We have a 34-year-old female, uh, P0, who presents to the renal clinic at 22 weeks gestation for evaluation of proteinuria. It was 30 on the UA. Blood pressure is 162 over 80 with a repeat blood pressure of 155 over 70, pulse of 105, Otherwise, the review symptoms is negative. Um, the exam is otherwise pretty negative as well. She is a little bit overweight, and her UPCR was 250 milligrams per gram. So why don't we go ahead and just talk about just the basic things that could potentially happen in a normal pregnancy, because there are a lot of things that occurs even with normal pregnancy and the normal physiology of it. So Priya, why don't you go ahead and kind of just walk us through, essentially, what can we expect when uh, a patient or a, a lady gets pregnant? Yeah, thanks, Yaniberi. Uh, so normal pregnancy gives some enormous changes to the woman in terms of uh, hemostasis and hemodynamics. And this is mainly to shelter the demands of the fetus. So kidney also undergoes certain structural and functional changes during a normal pregnancy. So coming to the size of the kidney first, Kidneys increase up to 1 to 1.5 cm in length during pregnancy and renal volume increases up to 30% and this increase in the volume is primarily due to an increase in the renal vascular and interstitial volume. Coming to the hemodynamic changes that happen in the kidney, there is a systemic vasodilatation with increased arterial compliance which causes decreased systemic vascular resistance and increased cardiac output that causes a decrease in the blood pressure. At the renal level, the renal plasma flow increases by up to 80% which is seen as early as 12 weeks of gestation, but then it decreases in third trimester. 
Coming to the glomerular filtration rate, the GFR is increased and surprisingly this increase is seen without any change in the number of nephrons. And the increase in the GFR is seen as early as in the first month of conception which peaks around 40 to 50 percent above the baseline levels uh, by the second trimester and then declines slightly towards the term. It is also interesting to note that in late gestation, left lateral positioning increases the glomerular filtration rate and sodium excretion. We might be wondering what are the mechanisms of increased GFR uh, in pregnancy and these mechanisms are well documented. Uh, it is said that there is reduced vascular responsiveness to vasopressors such as angiotensin 2, norepinephrine and ADH in pregnancy. And there is uh, increased expression of uh, AT2 receptor which produces vasodilatation uh, rather than vasoconstriction in response to angiotensin 2 and this is increased in pregnancy. And there is uh, this ovarian hormone relaxin which is normally produced in the corpus luteum of the ovary and in pregnancy it is excreted or uh, it is secreted in large amounts by the placenta uh, and the decidua in response to human chorionic gondotropin. So uh, uh, this relaxin is said to cause increased endothelin and nitric oxide production in the renal circulation leading to generalized vasodilation, decreased renal efferent and efferent arteriolar resistance and a subsequent increase in renal blood flow and glomerular filtration rate. And the gestational increase in GFR is also driven primarily by increased renal plasma flow. In fact, through most of the pregnancy, the rise in the renal plasma flow exceeds the rise in GFR with a fall in the filtration fraction. But late in the gestational uh, period, the renal plasma flow falls slightly while GFR is maintained resulting in an increased filtration fraction. So the maintenance of a high GFR despite a fall in renal plasma flow in late pregnancy is due to decreased capillary oncotic pressure, increased glomerular capillary pressure and decreased hydraulic permeability and surface area of the glomerular filtration barrier. This all happens in normal uh, physiological uh, pregnancy. What are the implications of these increase in the GFR during pregnancy? This is important for us to know because this physiological increase in GFR during pregnancy causes decrease in serum creatinine concentration in early pregnancy. So in a retrospective database study uh, done in Canada in over 240,000 pregnancies, they have observed that the mean serum creatinine concentration dropped in the first trimester and it leveled off in the second trimester and then gradually rose again uh, in the third trimester to the near pre-pregnancy levels. So a serum creatinine of 0.7 uh, milligram per deciliter or 70.7 micromole per liter or above while it is normal in a non-pregnant individual usually reflects renal impairment in a pregnant patient. Similarly, blood urea nitrogen levels also fall to approximately 8 to 10 milligram per deciliter for the similar reason. So careful attention to small fluctuations in serum creatinine is required to detect renal injury in pregnancy. So how do you estimate glomerular filtration rate in pregnancy? So all our creatinine based formulas to estimate the GFR uh, are not standardized in pregnancy. The 2021 CKD AP creatinine estimation estimated GFR equation which uses age and gender but omits race as a factor but this did not include pregnant participants and has not been validated in pregnancy. And hence what, is, what remains the gold standard for estimation of GFR in pregnancy is endogenous creatinine clearance which is measured by 24-hour urine collection and this remains the gold standard. Even the use of cystatin C to estimate GFR has not been validated for use in pregnant individuals. Although the normal range for creatinine excretion in pregnancy has not been established but a reasonable estimate uh, that a complete collection will contain around 15 to 20 milligram of creatinine per kg body weight using either pre-pregnancy uh, values uh, will remain validated. 
Uh, these are about the physiology, uh, but these changes in the renal hemodynamics and solute handling during pregnancy also result in alteration of some basic metabolic panel your, like your sodium and your uric acid and some changes in the acid-base uh, uh, values. So coming to the hyponatremia, there is this uh, resetting of osmostat in pregnancy. So the plasma osmology uh, in normal pregnancy falls to a new set point of approximately 270 milli osmoles per kg with a proportional decrease in the plasma sodium concentration of 4 to 5 millicolon per liter below normal pregnancy levels. Resetting of osmostat means that the plasma sodium concentration will be maintained at a new level despite variations in water or sodium intake. And this hyponatremia of pregnancy appears to be mediated by certain hormonal factors. And this is duty, uh, due to increased production of HCG. So, uh, serum sodium concentration of, of uh, between 130 to 135 doesn't necessitate any treatment, but any value below 130 again should prompt evaluation of pathological causes of hyponatremia such as SIADH or if it is associated with your uh, polyuria then uh, possibly diabetes insipidus of pregnancy should be evaluated. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, there's, uh, there might be uh, uh, physiological proteinuria and glucosuria observed secondary to your tubular reabsorption, uh, decreased tubular reabsorption of protein and uh, glucose. But any proteinuria exceeding 300 milligram in a day, again, uh, should be considered pathological and should evaluate, uh, uh, should uh, necessitate uh, underlying evaluation. Coming to the acid-base uh, evaluation, uh, uh, balance about in the kidney. Uh, minute ventilation rises in early pregnancy and remains elevated until term, leading to a modest fall in PCO2 and it causes mild respiratory alkalosis. So these changes are predominantly due to uh, direct uh, stimulation of the central respiratory centers by progesterone. So, and there is an appropriate metabolic response to the respiratory alkalosis. So the plasma bicarbonate levels decrease in normal pregnancy from 26 to approximately 22 millimoles per liter. And coming to a note about anion gap, for reasons that are not well understood, the serum albumin concentration falls in normal pregnancy. So the serum anion gap also falls since negatively charged albumin is a major component of anion gap. And the physiological hypoalbuminemia of pregnancy may account for the fall in anion gap. But this low albumin levels in pregnancy can have an implication when some, uh, somebody is on drugs like as uh, like uh, digoxin, metazolam and sanitoin which are highly protein bound and might lead to um, uh, toxic levels when the uh, levels of albumin decrease in pregnancy and necessitates uh, uh, decreased levels of decreased uh, dosages of these drugs. Coming to the structural changes, see uh, the renal pelvic acid system is dilated as a result of uh, effect of progesterone and mechanical compression of ureters at the pelvic brim. So dilation of the ureters and pelvis is seen in up to 80% of the pregnant patients and is more on the right than the left due to dextrorotation of the uterus by the sigmoid colon kinking of the ureter as it crosses the right iliac artery and proximity to the right ovarian vein. And there is uh, a bladder flaccidity, again because of uh, enlarging uterus which displaces the bladder superiorly and anteriorly and flattens it, which can sometimes decrease the capacity. And this bladder flaccidity may cause incompetence of the vesico-ureteral valve. And this change, combined with the increased intravesicle and decreased intraureteral pressure, it might result in intermittent vesico-ureteral reflex. So all these uh, st uh, structural changes um, can cause uh, certain lower unit tract symptoms like increased frequency, nocturia, urinary urgency, and urinary incontinence, and sometimes retention. But the good news is that the pregnancy-induced uh, structural and functional changes described just now 
might return to the non-pregnant state by four to six weeks following delivery. Okay, wow. So I just want to let you know that during all of that, I was actually writing down all of these key facts because that was amazing. Uh, you were able to give me all those highlights. So I'm just going to kind of review them for you. Um, and then, Crystal, if you have anything to add, please do so. So we're going to have a normal physiological pregnancy. We're going to have a decrease in blood pressure, an increase in heart rate, and also an increase in cardiac output, which makes sense because we have a fetus. Um, we're going to have an increase in GFR, which will show a slight decrease in creatinine. However, you still have to keep an eye on it, correct? Um, we have, you're allowed to have a little bit of proteinuria, but once it gets to around 300 milligrams per gram, like that UPCR, you really got to make sure that you focus in on it. Um, you can have some changes in your sodium, meaning like you'll essentially have a lower sodium, so a little bit of hyponatremia. You can get a respiratory alkalosis because of tidal volumes with a compensatory metabolic acidosis, excuse me, and then a physiological right-sided hydronephrosis. Did I get that right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so those are quite a few things, and all of this is truly happening with a normal physiology of pregnancy. Is that correct? True. Yeah. Very correct. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to make sure <laughs> that I got it all because you went through a lot, but it seems like that's exactly what the body has to do to make this happen. Yeah. And more importantly, I think the estimation of uh, glomerular filtration rate wherein all our um, uh, equations, uh, GFR equations remain uh, not validated so far. And the, the collection of 24-hour urine again is cumbersome in pregnancy, uh, but then that is the only way out to estimate the GFR. Okay, yeah, I think that's a great point that you mentioned is we have so many equations essentially that you can use to estimate this GFR, which just you know, on a completely different topic, just shows that we still need to be better at finding better ways to estimate renal function in patients um, because creatinine is just not the only way to do it. It's, it's outdated, um, but it, it's what we have and it's the best thing that we can do for now. Um, but lots of different equations and lots of different ways that potentially we can do better at that. Um, okay, so, so that's great. So we have this uh, patient. Um, our lady came in at 22 weeks. Um, but let me just go ahead and, and flip this case now. What if this patient came earlier? What if she came in at 17 or 18 weeks? Does this blood pressure, these um, proteinuria calculations that we get, um, does that change how I'm supposed to manage my patient? Christelle, do you have any thoughts about what I should be thinking of in someone with an earlier gestational age than uh, what Priya was talking about at 22 weeks. Now let's go ahead and bring it to 18. Yeah, that's an excellent question and an excellent thing that you bring up. Um, and so, you know, with mothers who come in and they are shown to care before 20 weeks, we typically think of their hypertension as chronic hypertension. Um, with 
Chronic hypertension is defined as having high blood pressure greater than or equal to 140 over 90 before pregnancy or before 20 weeks of pregnancy, or the use of antihypertensive medications before pregnancy, or the persistence of hypertension for greater than 12 weeks after delivery. These various definitions were created in order to keep in mind that there are mothers who have potentially never been diagnosed with hypertension in the past, and so they may not have an accurate blood pressure that was taken prior to the pregnancy. And so we like to just ensure that we are covering as many people as possible with this definition by using the other definitions, such as the use of antihypertensive medications before pregnancy or the persistence of hypertension for greater than 12 weeks after delivery. In terms of gestational hypertension, that tends to occur after 20 weeks of pregnancy. And so the official definition for gestational hypertension is high blood pressure greater than or equal to 140 over 90 during pregnancy in the absence of proteinuria and other cardiac or renal issues. It's typically diagnosed after 20 weeks of pregnancy, as I had mentioned, and it usually resolves after the delivery of the infant within 12 weeks of delivery. Because remember, if it hadn't resolved after 12 weeks uh, after delivery, then it would be more so thought of as chronic hypertension as opposed to gestational hypertension, if that makes sense. And it is important to remember that some women with gestational hypertension do have a higher risk of developing chronic hypertension in the future. And also important to remember that women who have chronic hypertension can also get preeclampsia in the second or third trimester of pregnancy. Preeclampsia is something that we'll talk a bit more about later on in this episode, but I wanted to just prime your mind into thinking about the fact that preeclampsia can occur in mothers with hypertension or chronic hypertension rather. In terms of correctly measuring a blood pressure, you know, it is important to remember that if we are going to use these blood pressure measurements, we have to ensure that we're actually measuring it effectively and the right way. And so I wanted to take a quick minute to just go over how to correctly measure a blood pressure per the CDC guideline. And so, first of all, you wanna make sure that you're not eating or drinking anything for about 30 minutes prior to getting your blood pressure measured. You also wanna make sure that you're emptying your bladder before your reading, your blood pressure reading. You wanna make sure that you're sitting in a comfortable chair with your back supported for at least five minutes before your reading. And also want to ensure that you're putting both of your feet flat on the ground and that you're keeping your legs crossed. You want to rest your arm with the cuff on the table at chest height and also make sure that the blood pressure cuff that you're using is snug but not too tight because you don't want to get an inaccurate reading. The cuff should be against your bare skin and should not be over any clothing. And you want to also make sure that you're not talking while your blood pressure is being measured. Again, you want to make sure that it's as accurate as possible because the blood pressure measurement that we're using is one that is going to be very important as we talk about various ways to ensure that your the mother is staying healthy and if they need if they need any management 
for the blood pressure, we want to make sure that it's as accurate as possible. And so those are just some things that I wanted to go over as we talk about this case. In terms of managing a patient who comes in with um, who comes in with elevated blood pressures prior to 18 weeks of gestation. So we're thinking about this being more so chronic hypertension. And we want to ensure that we are advocating for lifestyle modifications such as weight reduction and the implementation of the dietary attempts to stop hypertension diet, better yet known as DASH diet in non-pregnant women. However, in pregnant women, we want to do these same things as well. We want to ensure that we're not restricting their dietary sodium because that can actually potentially limit the volume expansion that you would typically see in pregnancy. So whereas in non-pregnant women, you can think about sodium restriction to help reduce the blood pressure. In pregnant women, you want to, you don't want to restrict the sodium. The sodium. You want to make sure that you're actually focusing more on reducing extraneous weight and that you are also using the DASH diet to bring down the blood pressure. And the blood pressure goal that we're shooting for is less than 130 over 80. So what I got from that, because again, I'm taking notes here. (laughs) What I got from that is 20 weeks is your cutoff when you're talking about gestational age, whether the mother has chronic or essentially already has hypertension versus someone who gets a new onset hypertension after 20 weeks. And that would be considered gestational because it seems like they're only having hypertension associated with the pregnancy. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And then you were talking about, uh, you know, management of this. And then I guess like what I thought was really interesting is when you were talking about not restricting sodium, right? We always talk about that for a lot of our hypertension patients. But I think you made like a very important note is it's not just the mother that we are talking about, right? We also want to optimize the best uh, physiological environment, if you will, for our fetus. So I guess this goes with the common term water weight then, right? You were talking about sodium and how if you were to say want to be at an acceptable weight, uh, it's not that you should lose muscle mass or things like that. It would really truly be just fluid. And because you have this volume expanded state, um, it's not necessarily that you want to get rid of the salt because that's really not what's happening here. Um, And I think Priya also mentioned it with all of the hormones that go on with the normal physiology of pregnancy is a lot of this is water weight, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a healthy diet for our moms. Um, And that goes with that DASH diet that we all have all kind of been chatting about. Um, But I think it's also very, very important when it comes uh, to this and to our patients here. So 20 weeks before and after, before it's um, chronic and after it's gestational. Um, So perfect. So now I know my cutoff. Um, So let's go back to our case again. Uh, We were starting with the 22-week gestational patient. Um, So now we kind of fast forward and we move towards 26 weeks. So your patient now has blood pressure of 175 over 90 
but she now has a new one-week history of headaches as well as like seeing floaters, some like visual changes. And her UPCR in the clinic is 260. It was 250 before. So now what, what exactly is happening here? Because this is a little bit of a change than the patient we just saw a couple weeks ago. She felt good. Her blood pressure was high. But now it seems like we have some symptoms. So like Priya, can you kind of tell me what your thought process is and what you think is going on with our patient here? Yeah, the blood pressure has definitely gone up. So I think uh, she might be uh, having uh, accelerated hypertension or uh, hypertension uh, emergency. Uh, so she needs uh, immediate uh, control of the blood pressure. So uh, what are the options uh, we have uh, regarding uh, the drugs uh, for, me, uh, for uh, uh, reaching a target uh, hypertension during pregnancy? So we have various options. Uh, again, uh, the, these uh, blood pressure medications have to be uh, administered to the patients, keeping in mind the fetus too. So the various options we have are you have uh, alpha-2 agonists like uh, methyl dopa and clonidin uh, and we have beta blockers, we have calcium channel blockers, we have diuretics, we have direct vasodilators but certain of these drugs all cannot be prescribed to our uh, uh, woman uh, um, and um, or, or drugs uh, have to be prescribed keeping in mind the fetus. So we have methyl dopa uh, which is a, 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 a centrally acting alpha agonist. Um, uh, it uh, it is not thought to be teratogenic uh, based on uh, a nearly 40-year history of use in pregnancy. Uh, it has been used in a number of prospective trials in pregnant women compared with placebo and other alternative hypertensive agents. And then it is uh, considered uh, to be safe and it does not seem to have any adverse effects on uteroplacental or fetal hemodynamics or on fetal well-being. So this is uh, again the first line of uh, drug we usually uh, prescribe uh, in pregnancy. On the other hand, clonidin, which is also a, a selective alpha-2 agonist, which acts similarly uh, to methyl dopa, uh, but then uh, this is uh, not uh, uh, really prescribed to all our pregnant women because of uh, increased uh, uh, risk of uh, sleep disturbances in clonidine-exposed infants. And uh, in pregnancy, it is mainly used as a third-line agent for multi-drug uh, control of a refractory hypertension. Uh, coming to beta blockers, uh, so oral beta blocker has been associated uh, with non-clinically significant neonatal bradycardia. Although in a many uh, systemic uh, review of trials, labetalol, which we commonly use, does not um, seem to cause neonatal heart rate effects. So this is considered to be a relatively safer uh, beta blocker. Uh, but parental therapy has been found to increase the risk of neonatal bradycardia requiring intervention in one out of six newborns according to a, uh, according to a study. So, and labetrol is also uh, uh, known to uh, be associated with uh, fetal growth restriction, re uh, restriction in the management uh, of uh, preeclampsia uh, when we use uh, labetrol in control of uh, uh, hypertension when in, in, uh, in lines of preeclampsia. Uh, but then again, the incidence is very less and uh, but then uh, it is uh, relatively safer to use and it has also a lower incidence of maternal hypotension and other adverse effects. Coming to calcium channel blocker, uh, the only concern uh, we have with the usage of uh, calcium antagonists for BP control in preeclampsia has been the concomitant use of magnesium sulfate sometimes we use to prevent eclampsia. So drug interactions between nephidipine and magnesium sulfate were reported to cause neuromuscular blockade, myocardial depression or circulatory collapse in some cases. But in practice and in more recent evaluation, these medications are commonly used together without any increased risk. And in our part of the world, the first line of drug uh, we use is being a uh, nephidipine. Uh, 
uh, but the maternal adverse effects of the calcium channel blockers have to be kept in mind and these include tachycardia palpitations peripheral edema headaches and facial plus uh, flushing uh, nephropin does not seem to cause a detectable decrease in the uterine uh, blood flow uh, but then uh, short acting uh, dihydropyridine calcium antagonist uh, are not to be administered sublingually for the treatment of hypertension uh, in uh, uh, in pregnant women for uh, fear of myocardial infarction and death in uh, and death in uh, these patients so coming to other uh, line of drugs like we have direct vasodilators like hydrolyzine so hydrolyzine uh, it's a selective uh, uh, smooth muscle arteriolar vasodilator so this is again used as a uh, second or third line of drug uh, the adverse effects are mostly due to excessive vasodilatation or sympathetic activation which include headache, nausea, flushing, and palpitations. And um, chronic use can sometimes cause drug-induced lupus syndrome, which is probably not relevant in our set of pregnant women. Um, Hydrolyzine has been used in all trimesters of pregnancy, and data have not shown an any association, uh, association with teratogenicity, although certain case reports of neonatal thrombocytopenia and lupus have been reported. So it has been widely used for chronic hypertension in second and third trimesters, but then its use has been supplanted by agents with more favorable adverse effect profiles uh, like labetlol and other uh, drugs we have. Uh, but for acute severe hypertension later in pregnancy, intravenous hydrolyzine has been associated with more maternal and per perinatal uh, adverse effects uh, than intravenous labetlol or oral nifedipine such as uh, maternal hypertension or uh, the number of sex cesarean sections, number of placental abruptions or APGAR scores less than 7 or oliguria. And uh, the other uh, um, uh, arteriolar and venular vascular, vascular smooth muscle dilator we have is sodium nitroprusside, which is not uh, used regularly for uh, uh, fear of uh, cyanide toxicity uh, because nitroprusside uh, uh, metabolism releases cyanide which can receive toxic levels with high infusion rates and this cyanide is, cyanide is metabolized to thiocyanate and the toxicity uh, usually uh, occurs 24 to 48 hours of infusion unless its excretion is delayed due to renal insufficiency. So this is usually generally not used. So and coming to a note about diuretics, we usually do not prescribe diuretics uh, uh, for fear of uh, a decreased placental perfusion unless and until uh, it is required to uh, control the fluid overload in patients who are already hypertensive, who are already pre uh, uh, proteinuric, uh, and has been on multiple uh, antihypertensive drugs, which might necessitate uh, diuretics for uh, fluid retention. Yes, hydrochlorothiazide is safe there, but the other drugs um, uh, like your uh, loop diuretics and all, they are known to decrease um, the placental perfusion and hence uh, kind of contraindicated. Uh, and also there is a strict contraindication for potassium sparing diuretics, ex uh, especially your triamterine and aldosterone uh, antagonist for fear of uh, teratogenic um, uh, effects. So, uh, and our ACE inhibitors, our ARBs are definitely contraindicated in uh, pregnancy uh, for fear of uh, teratogenic effects like cleft lip, cleft palate and other uh, teratogenic um, effects on the fetus. So to categorize, I would, cons uh, I would categorize methyl dopa as category B and it is given in the dosage of 0.5 to 3 gram per day in two divided dosage. This is the preferred line of drug uh, to manage hypertension in pregnancy. Coming to the second line of agents, we have beta blockers like labetalol, which is categorized as category C, which is given in dosages of 200 to 1200 milligram per day in 2 to 3 divided dosages. Then comes uh, nifedipine calcium channel blocker category C, which is given in dosages of 30 to 120 milligram per day in a slow release preparation. 
the adverse effects may like uh, it can inhibit labor and uh, uh, might decrease uterine contractions and it might uh, uh, cause synergistic action with magnesium sulfate which needs to be kept in mind and uh, coming to your vasodilators they are category c which is given in uh, dosage of 50 to 300 milligram per day in two to four divided doses and beta blockers come uh, the other beta blockers they're categorized as category c and uh, our diuretic hydrochlorothiazide is categorized as category c uh, which is given in dosage of 12.5 to 25 milligram per day uh, only in uh, cases where it is indicated and there are uh, the drugs which are considered uh, for the urgent control of severe hypertension in pregnancy are intravenous preparations intravenous labetalol intravenous um, hydrolyzine and we have uh, intravenous digoxide yeah and usually nitroprusside can be given intravenous but then this is the last resort we have to control life threatening hypertension life threatening refractory hypertension i would say no so essentially what you're saying so you went through all the big categories and so it seems like beta blockers and calcium channel blockers might be more of our go-to medications but i guess one of the questions that i have is this patient we're not going to keep them in the outpatient setting and try to titrate medications orally right we want them in the hospital on iv medication because they're symptomatic is that correct or should i be trying to do all of this you know in 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 the clinic so so bring them in is that correct Yes, we need to admit them inpatient and also evaluate for underlying, uh, 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 prom uh, underlying uh, is the patient going into your help or uh, preeclampsia, that needs evaluation. Okay. So because she's symptomatic, even though her labs are okay, even though this urine protein creatinine is about the same, the fact that we, don't, we have a patient that is not getting better on the meds that we put her on and she's symptomatic, we bring her in. Okay, very good. So. Um, I wanted to just kind of piggyback on that um, because going through all of those medications, we have quite a few to go through. Um, there is a 2018 Cochrane review that came out regarding head-to-head um, -head meta-analysis of all the different medications that you can potentially use. And just like Priya was saying, beta blockers and calcium channel blockers seem to be the most effective ones, while methyl dopa is still very much up there as well. But like she said, if someone's having symptoms like this, you want to bring them in and try to make sure that everything is going okay for them um, because that is the most important thing that you can do. So, okay, so we brought our patient in. Um, you know, we were able to get her blood pressure better. I don't know. We threw her on some IV labetalol. Her blood pressures got better, and then we sent her home with better blood pressures. But now our patient comes back. About two more weeks later, our poor patient, um, and it's now 28 weeks gestation, her blood pressure is better. Um, it's 152 over 78, but now we have a new urine protein creatinine ratio that's up to 1,500. And again, remember two weeks ago, it was only 260. She does not have any symptoms. She feels great, Christelle. She feels absolutely great. Her blood pressures are better, but now you have this new UPCR. What should I do? Should I keep her in my clinic? Am I, like, what am I looking for her? Does she have to go in? I mean, she doesn't really feel bad. Like, what do I do from here? This is an excellent question. And it's something that we see, honestly, more often than we would like to see. 
And so I am more than happy to kind of talk through what's going on here. What we're seeing is concerning for what's called preeclampsia. And you may have heard about you know, preeclampsia and eclampsia and kind of wondering what's the difference of those things? What are these things? What should we do about them? And so I'm happy to take a little bit of time to explain in more detail what preeclampsia is, how it differs from eclampsia, how often we see it, and how to go about managing it. And so starting off with what preeclampsia is, which is what we're seeing in this patient, it is defined as the presence of high blood pressure, which again, we equate to 140 over 90 or greater. And this high blood pressure is also accompanied by proteinuria. And so just wanted to talk a bit more about the high blood pressure of 140 over 90 or higher. We get this high blood pressure by measuring correctly the blood pressure of the patient on two occasions, at least four hours apart. Or if the blood pressure is greater than or equal to 160 over 110, then we would measure that on two occasions within several minutes of each measurement. After 20 weeks of gestation in a woman with a previously normal blood pressure, we want to ensure that if it's really high, we are acting on it quite quickly because a really high blood pressure can be damaging not only for the mother, but also for the unborn fetus. And so while we define that as high blood pressure, we define proteinuria as greater than or equal to 300 milligrams per 24-hour urine collection or a urine protein creatinine ratio greater than or equal to 0.3 milligrams per deciliter or if all else fails and you don't have anything else that you can measure the protein in the urine with outside of a urine distich, a urine distich reading of one plus or greater would suffice. And so, again, preeclampsia is defined as the presence of high blood pressure plus proteinuria. However, if there isn't proteinuria present, you can still define preeclampsia if you have a high blood pressure plus any one of the following, thrombocytopenia, which is defined as a platelet count of less than 100,000 platelets per microliter, renal insufficiency, which is defined as a serum creatinine concentration greater than 1.1 milligram per deciliter, or a doubling of the serum creatinine in the absence of other renal disease, or impaired liver function, which is defined as elevated serum liver function tests twice up to twice the normal amount or severe persistent right upper quadrant or epigastric pain not responsive to medication or accounted for by other alternative diagnoses or pulmonary edema or cerebral and visual symptoms. And so you can see that preeclampsia can be defined in quite a number of ways. So you might not necessarily have proteinuria. So I got to really keep an eye out for not to make this confusing, but I have to keep an eye out for pretty much anything when we have uh, a patient that is like closer to term um, and with high blood pressure. So that's probably the reason why you need to potentially bring these patients in, just like Priya was saying, make sure you're ruling out other causes because it might not necessarily be hypertension and proteinuria, right? They might not always go together. Is that correct? That is correct. 
Okay, I just wanted to make sure because I always thought preeclampsia is always blood pressure and proteinuria. Like, but now you're telling me that I have to be far more open-minded than that when it comes to making sure that I don't miss it. Okay, got it. I just wanted to clarify because that was kind of new for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I had learned that in medical school that proteinuria plus high blood pressure would equal preeclampsia, which is you yes, know what we I all remember. thought of. Yep. Yeah. Um, when I was looking into this, you know, there were an update in the guidelines. I believe it was in 2013 with ACOG, if I'm not mistaken. And it stated this new definition of preeclampsia. And so I wanted to make sure that we all understood this uh, new definition and that we were all updated about that. Perfect. Perfect. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that was something that I was like, man, uh, didn't that was not what I learned in med school, so. Yeah, yeah, definitely important stuff. Um, and so, um, in contrast, eclampsia is honestly actually preeclampsia plus the presence of either seizures or a coma. And so, you you would get pretty much all the symptoms that you would think of with preeclampsia, but you would also get uh, altered mental status with seizures or a coma. And so I hope that makes sense. And just to yeah. kind of, yeah, just to kind of think about, you know, the symptoms that you would um, see with preeclampsia, um, you can see a wide variety of things, such as headaches, abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting. You can see a heightened state of anxiety. Uh, you can see some shortness of breath uh, or burning behind the sternum as well. And you may see some uh, visual disturbances as well, such as blurred vision or just seeing flashing spots of auras or oversensitivity to light. And so those are just some of the clinical symptoms to watch out for when you are thinking, or where, rather when you have a patient who comes in that you're concerned about preeclampsia. And these patients need to be taken to the, to the hospital very quickly because things can go south really fast if you don't do that. And, you know, the only true management or true definitive cure is delivery of the baby. You can definitely work on tempering the blood pressure with all the various blood pressure medications that was previously mentioned. But until that baby is delivered, this mom is at really high risk of continuing to develop these preeclampsia symptoms. And again, the longer that the mother has active symptoms of preeclampsia, the more damage that can potentially be done, not only to her, but to the unborn fetus. So it seems like we as nephrologists will just have to really keep an open eye to almost every single potential symptom that our mothers can have, right? Um, and these mothers are going through a lot. They um, are carrying life. So a lot of these symptoms that might not be big red flags to us on a day-to-day -day basis for other patients, other populations, it seems that we have to be on more of a heightened awareness when these patients uh, present this way. Because if they have high blood pressure, which it seems that regardless of when we learned about preeclampsia, you'll always have high blood pressure. So we'll keep that in mind. But now there can be all sorts of other symptoms that can essentially add to our diagnosis of preeclampsia outside of the proteinuria that we might have classically been uh, taught. Okay, 
So essentially, you bring them in, you make sure that you rule out everything else. And if it's preeclampsia, you go ahead and with our OB colleagues, uh, we monitor them, we make sure that we do what's best in regards to delivery of baby, um, um, especially timing, right? Uh, because timing's going to be uh, the biggest issue because essentially what we're trying to do is we want to be able to remove the placenta, right? Because unfortunately that placenta is going to be the driving force like Priya was mentioning earlier with all of our hormones. So it seems like coming to a decision and again, OB is going to do a great job making sure that they kind of drive uh, what the safest thing is, but we as nephrologists can also understand the process. Um, it seems like Anywhere from 32 to 34 weeks might be the goal in terms of delivering the baby. Do you, uh, do you agree? Um, or Pri, if you have anything to chime in, because we want to make sure that uh, while we are taking care of mom, of course, we want to make sure that our fetus is doing well. We want to make sure that they are in the safest spot that they can be um, and essentially not be delivered too soon, right? So. Some things that you might have to do uh, before uh, 34 weeks would be, uh, I was reading steroids essentially, because if we go back to peds, and I know Christelle, he's our peds guy here, uh, we're always making sure, and maybe you want to kind of talk about, you know, respiratory distress or some things that happen to uh, the kids when they come out, but essentially we're, we're just trying to make sure that fetal lung maturation is appropriate. Is that correct? And like, what are the things that you kind of look at? Now we're going to shift just a touch to, you know, our, our newborns. Like, what are you as a pediatrician trying to make sure uh, is the best for, for our, our kiddo while all of this is happening to mom? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it's really important to keep that in mind that, you know, with our fetuses and our newborns, we want to ensure that while we are treating the mother and making sure that she is as healthy as possible. We do want to try as much as we can to delay delivery for as long as we can, because the longer that the, the baby is in the mother, the more time they have to actually mature, not only their lungs, but just about everything else in their body, you know, their brain, they need to continue to develop that. They need to also continue to develop uh, just about like their kidneys, everything else that you would think of when you have a healthy baby. Um, when a baby is born premature, they more likely than not, they don't have the right amount of surfactant in their lungs to actually breathe successfully outside of the womb. And so you see things like respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, you may see transient kidney at the newborn. Um, you just want to ensure that we are doing what we can to try and avoid the baby from having to be in the NICU for an extended amount of time for continued support. And so, yeah, I agree that we, we really need to ensure that while the mother is getting the treatment they need, that we are also delaying the baby to be delivered for as long as we can until we absolutely need to deliver the baby because we also don't want to wait too long and then compromise the health of the baby and the mother. 
Okay, great. So it seems like preeclampsia, you know, we pay attention to it, you know, towards the end of, you know, the pregnancy, but like, does, does it come up anywhere else? Does it come up after? Like, what are those thoughts? Priya, do you, like, when am I supposed to be paying attention to this? Can it happen after delivery? Yeah, anybody. This is very important for us to see uh, because postpartum eclampsia does exist. Uh, and this, uh, uh, the, the woman uh, can still have seizures uh, and central nervous system symptoms uh, as long as eight weeks postpartum. So any uh, pregnant woman who delivers and then continues to have high blood pressures, continues to have central nervous system symptoms uh, and throws up seizures at a later date, any time from the delivery or from eight, 48 hours, after the delivery till for uh, till eight weeks postpartum uh, is it falls under the category postpartum eclampsia so a high index of suspicion and a lookout for this um, uh, uh, this postpartum eclampsia should be there in women especially who continues to have uh, uncontrolled uh, blood pressures because uh, these are the candidates or these are the patients who are likely to throw up seizures uh, at a later time so adequate control of uh, blood pressures uh, postpartum is also uh, very important uh, with the appropriate drugs needed, keeping uh, in mind the breastfeeding part. Okay, okay. And now that we're kind of touching base with, like, now that we're after delivery, like, are there certain medications that we can or can't use for breastfeeding for blood pressure? I know that there are a couple, but, like, sometimes it's just so hard because you're not supposed to use some for pregnancy, but it's okay for breastfeeding. Like, what are what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so according to National High Blood Pressure Education uh, Program Working Group, that is NHBPEP Working Group, uh, it said that uh, diuretics uh, may reduce milk production and hence they're not uh, indicated while breastfeeding. Uh, whereas uh, uh, beta blockers uh, like uh, your uh, labetlol can be safe to use, but metaprolol again is classified as uh, uh, excreted in human milk so it has to be uh, you know uh, used uh, with vigilance and other beta blockers like acibutalol and etanolol uh, should not be used in nursing mothers uh, so essentially we can use um, uh, AC inhibitors like your captopril, enalapril, your calcium channel blockers like uh, diltiazem and um, uh, veramapil can be used and diuretics usually not uh, used but if it is indicated hydrochlorothiazide and um, other calcium channel blockers, um, yeah, I said about calcium channel blockers can be used safely, like nifedipine and verapamil. And uh, the potassium sparing uh, uh, antagonists are better to be uh, better to be uh, 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 not to be used. And uh, other drugs we have like uh, yeah, hydrolazine and uh, minoxidil. Uh, those are vasodilators can be safely used. I th I think that you. Philly did a great job covering that, honestly. Um, I don't really have much else to add. <laughs> yeah, no, that was really good. I know that blood pressure medications, there's just so many to choose from. Like, if you think of how many groups there are, you can automatically just do six right off the top of your head of just groups, let alone all the different ones that are in it. So I think, like, uh, it's just tough. I think, like, what we all just need to be vigilant on is just, like, always checking the literature, right? Making sure that medications are safe in pregnancy. Um, and then again, as Priya was saying, after pregnancy, right? Because now we have like a completely different set of physiological things that are happening. Um, and it seems like no matter what we do, preeclampsia, eclampsia, and hypertension can still potentially happen after delivery as well. So making sure that we 
pay attention to that um, even after delivery. So it's not something that you just like uh, stop looking for, if you will. Um, okay, let's see here. I think that was pretty much about it. Um, this was, I think, a pretty good case. It's something that a lot of us can say that we've seen. Um, uh, Christelle, do you have any like last minute thoughts? And then Priya af after that, or any like little tips or things that you want to like tell and share with us before we kind of sign off? Yeah, so I think uh, early uh, antenatal checkup uh, of a pregnant woman is must. Uh, I'm emphasizing more on this because in this part of the world where antenatal checkup do happen, but there are certain areas where the, uh, the pregnant women don't turn up until second or third trimester. So early antenatal uh, care uh, should be uh, accessible to all uh, pregnant women, uh, which should emphasize on uh, the basic uh, checkup of the woman, uh, including blood pressure. So this uh, should be more emphasized, blood pressure. And then um, a complete urine examination. This is something which will go give us a clue uh, what the patient uh, can or uh, is undergoing through. Absolutely, because I guess, you know, we can't forget about before all of this happens, right? All of the prenatal care before, you know, not everything just starts at gestational age 20, right? And I think that's a great, great point that Priya brought up um, is like good access to care and, and follow up with that. Crystal? Yeah, and just to echo what she was saying, what Priya was saying, great prenatal care is extremely important and just really being mindful of the various social and structural terms of health that affect the patients that we serve. And just keeping in mind that there are really unfortunate health disparities that are really un unacceptably large, honestly. And so we know that um, you know maternal mortality, especially within the U.S., is among the highest of um, the various high-income countries. And so we want to really ensure that we are keeping in mind the disparities that exist and that we are delivering care that is equitable for all and really trying to ensure that we are following up with our patients to ensure that they are getting the prenatal care they need in order to have a safe and, and healthy pregnancy so that they can have a safe and healthy delivery for their newborns. I know that there are a lot of good papers that you guys mentioned, so we'll make sure to put all of those in our show notes um, that'll be attached. Uh, one great, um, article that uh, has come out in 2021 was from the American Heart Association and essentially they have a scientific statement for hypertension and pregnancy so if you want a very uh, cohesive uh, breakdown of diagnosis blood pressure goals medications um, we'll also put that in the show notes as well um so okay guys well thanks so much for uh joining us i had a really great time it's always like a pleasure to uh work with my fellow co-interns um we've been having a great time you know off of zoom and and in all of our groups doing all of our projects and i'm just really glad that all three of us were able uh to do this today likewise this is a lot of fun um it was always a pleasure to work with you all Thanks, Yanni. Very thanks, Rizal. So happy to be part of uh, this podcast. 
thanks for joining us, guys. Um, this is your Nephrology Social Media Consortium Pod 3. We call ourselves the SGLT3 group. Uh, we're so happy that you joined us. And uh, thanks, thanks for joining us. All right, take care. Bye-bye.